York State Department of Transportation presents the DOT POD. And welcome into the DOT POD. I'm Josh Heller. And I'm Anya Cardos. And we are delighted to have you joining us here today back in the DOT POD studios. And with us here, and glad to have him with us, is Mike Rossi, one of NYSDOT's longtime leaders in innovative initiatives using data and information to help shape the future of New York's vast transportation network. Recently moved into the role of acting director of NYSDOT's newly created Office of Data and Information Technology management. Thanks so much, Mike, for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, we hear you've definitely got quite the chops for this new job, as you've also been described by some of your fellow colleagues as a karate guru. So we're also oh, going to talk a little bit about that along with your new position. Congratulations. Thank you. So let's uh, let's kick this off. Let's, let's start out a little bit uh, you know, at the beginning and, and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and what brought you initially here to DOT. Uh, sure. Um, I... Uh... I originally I went to Clarkson University for engineering. I uh, graduated from there back in 1996. And my first job, uh, I got a job as a consulting engineer uh, working for a company designing airports. So I did a lot of um, runway and taxiway uh, apron design, um, did a bunch of cool projects for that. But uh, I did it for 11 years, but it was like a lot of hours, a lot, a lot of hours. And uh, uh, my wife at the my wife and I at the time were looking to have kids, and I said, you know, I can't sustain this and be a good family person. So I ended up uh, taking a leap of faith. I took a fifty percent pay cut, came to start work for the state, started all over as a JE. Uh, you know, eleven years experience and a and a and a PE license, and you know, you, you come in at the ground ground level and you work your way up through the organization. Um, did a lot of work with pavement management when I first got here. Uh, me and Rick Bennett, who was my boss at the time, uh, wrote the first pavement management system for the for the department. Um, did it in Excel and then Access. Uh, eventually, we were able to hire a consulting firm to come and, and develop that for us. Uh, and from there, I carried that through to be the asset management lead for the department, uh, head of the Highway Data Services Bureau, um, and now moved into this new position um, as the head of the Office of Data Data Management here at DOT, it's it's a lot. It's 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 been a it's been a fantastic ride, and a lot of it has has tied back to that um, respect for and uh, understanding the uh, value of data and technology for the department. Right, um, being able to back up the decisions you make with with data uh, to show other people, listen, we're not just making stuff up over here. We we know what we're doing, and let me show you, right? Let me show you the, the, the information that we have and, and how it leads to good decisions. Maybe you can go into that about your, when talking about your new role as acting director of the Office of Data and Information, because a lot of us here, you know, some of us know a lot of this stuff. Some of us don't, like me and That's Josh. That's also me here, too. Yeah, no, for sure. You know? Sure. So can you kind of explain to us why this office is important, what's new about it, and how it will change our path going forward here at DOT? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, sure. So it's interesting. The um, This really w- was highlighted a couple months ago. Uh, we, we got a survey from uh, from from downtown essentially saying, uh, what is the current state of play for your for your data assets? Right? Do you know how much money you spend every year on data? Do you know um, what your data needs and and system needs are going to be into the future? And there was a lot of like 
as an enterprise, as, a, as an entire department, we, we don't. There's a lot of really smart stuff happening. It's happening in the regions, happening in, in, in the different divisions. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we, that we implement, a lot of the innovative things that we do are done at the bureau and office level, right? And so what this office, this new office is going to do is kind of get our hands around that as an agency. We do a lot of really smart things within our cylinders of excellence, right? Um, but what my job is to do in this new role is to break down those silos, those data, the, and get more data integration, right? If um, one part of the department is collecting some information that other parts can use uh, to make better decisions, um, right now you kind of have to have a personal relationship with somebody over there to, to know what goes on. Right in different parts of the department, and uh, one of the major roles we're going to have is as a clearinghouse for that information to make sure that uh, we collect the information, we uh, get it out to everybody. The thing that I've been kind of the the drum that I've been beating is this idea of a quest for omniscience. I want our engineers and planners to have all of the information that the, that the department knows about a location when they go to do a project. Right? If we had done um, a traffic study in a location. Um, well, I'll give you an example, right? If there's a location where I want to do work, uh, if I want to know the pave, if I want to know the pavement information, I have to go call the the, uh, the pavement engineer, and then I have to call the bridge engineer uh, or the structures team to to find out what what's going on for the bridges in the corridor. I would have to call up somebody else over in traffic and safety to see if there's issues with the with with um, with safety. I'd have to call somebody else in highway data services to figure out if there's a traffic, what the traffic volumes are, why. Right? Why should I have to call 17 people to find out what's going on? And if I miss one of those or if somebody retires, how do I know that there were soil borings done in, in that area? Right. What I want is to be able to take all the information we have about a spot and put it in a, in a, in a, in a format, in a position where people can easily access it. So when they go to do work, they know all the stuff. So what I want is to, is to really make that super quick. Communication. So, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, right? and, and you're right. With 8,000-plus I mean, employees all across the state, different regions, different departments, uh, it's it, communications, it's got to be, A, difficult, but B, absolutely integral. Right, and I can't imagine someone com coming into the department now and knowing because you don't know what you don't know. So uh, who do I call to find out about the safety information at, at this location? And do they even know that that data is available for them to ask for, right? And so it's that's that's a large part of what this group is going to be doing. And, and I know for, for myself and, and Anya, this is probably true for you too. When we first started here, which is not all that long ago, you know, the, the thing was I didn't I didn't assume I was going to know a lot of things, but it was trying to figure out who to go to to find out the things that I don't know. Right. And so that's that was the tricky part. I mean, I, I know I don't know it, but how do I find out it? And having a place to be able to do that is is someone who does come in brand new. That's got to be a huge weight off their mind. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope so. The, the idea is right now I have uh, zero staff. It is just me. Uh, but the idea is to staff up to um, 20, 25 people, hopefully, in the future. And... Once that team is up and established, we are going to be a resource for the department in that way, right? So what are some of our needs then that you feel are critical and will really help us going forward? So let me, because uh, my background is in asset management, let me, let me approach that question. I'll give an example, right? So uh, to do effective asset management, you have to know uh, what you own, what is the inventory of the assets that you're talking about, um, what is their condition, what... Uh, is their condition going to be into the future, which means I need to have deterioration curves for those things? What are the different treatments that I would apply to those, um, to those assets at different stages of their life? 
what kind of extension, what does it cost, right? And then once you have that information, then you can do real cool modeling, right? If I give you $100 million and you spend it a certain way, what what is the long-term effects on the transportation system, right? How how do you deal with, with modeling when something like that comes out of the loop? I mean, you can't predict ahead of time something like that's going to happen. Or, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the, the life expectancy of, you know, bridges and, and other assets, you know, with, say, the, the oncoming, uh, you know, effects that we've seen already of climate change. How can you, you know, build that into models to try to prepare and, and, and predict things that, that frankly are, uh, are we don't know yet? Yeah. So... A couple of thoughts on that. The first one is that when you are trying to approach a a, um, a complex problem like that, let's say, right? So when we built the uh, the deterioration curves for pavements and bridges, uh, we took a look at all the pavements and all the bridges, and we looked at the the. I mean, we collect information every year on their condition. So you have on the pavement side when we when we developed those, we had thirty years of of pavement deterioration information. Right for a, a couple different metrics that we use to measure the the health of the pavement, but what you're essentially doing is you either can take a look at the existing information available, right, the historical information that we collect, and use that to create deterioration curves and look into the future, knowing what you know from the past. But then the other option, let's say for climate change, right. So the other thing that you can do is you can take a look at listen. There's studies going on all throughout the country about this this particular problem. And uh, and looking at the effects of what does five extra degrees mean, right, for deterioration of roads. And so uh, I go to the transportation research um, conference every year down in D.C. And um, one of the one of the studies that was done a couple of years ago, which I found intensely fascinating. Right now, what they're looking at is in our climate region up in the north of the United States, when they're um, when climate change hits. And let's say everything goes up by about two degrees. It's not that the asphalt is going to get so hot that it's going to melt and rut. That's not the problem. But your freeze-thaw cycles are going to last longer. So right now what happens is that pavements really get wrecked when, the, when um, there's water under the pavement. At night, it freezes. And I, uh, water expands, right, And when it, when it turns into ice. And then when it thaws during the day, because let's say it gets to be about 50 degrees, the water... Uh, melts and then trickles out, and now you have this void in your pavement, right? And that's where the potholes, potholes come from, yep. right? right? Yeah. So what they found is that right now, in some parts of the state, that uh, happens for around six weeks. If you increase the temperature by a couple degrees, you may have that uh, go on for five months, Ugh. right? Wow. So what happens if it if it if it thaws every day and it freezes every night, and it ha- it does that all throughout December and January and February and March? Holy schmoly. Yeah. Right? And so then I can take that and I can apply that information to our predictive model to say, okay, this is actually what you're going to get. So question about that. Are the public, they are our stakeholders. Mm -hmm. That example makes sense to me because I can see a future where we might be changing how we're repairing roads, when we're repairing roads, things like that. What about in other ways? Is this helpful or impacting our stakeholders, the public, so that we're saving money? We're, what, what is the benefit of data and technology-driven methods like that's, this? That's an excellent question. So one of the things that we need to do as a department, one of our, one of our goals, in fact, in, in terms of all government, right, is to, is to serve the people and make really good decisions with the – we have the responsibility and the authority that they have given to us, right? And that responsibility is real. Um, so what we be, need to be able to do is show to the public that we are doing the best that we can 
with the money that we have available. We are making intelligent, long-range decisions that make it so that the entire system is in the best operating condition that it can be. And once again, uh, New York is a leader in that. And we are, we are leaders in asset management and, and, and that on that front in terms of showing the effectiveness of the, of the funding that we have. What a lot of our data analytics does and will do and will continue to do is ensure that we are spending every dollar as effectively as we possibly can to meet all of the goals that the department has on behalf of the stakeholders, on behalf of the users of the system. And right? show that. Exactly. And that's not just payment and bridge conditions, right? That's all the other stuff that, that, that a person expects. They want, to meet, they want to know that every time they hop in their car, it takes 22 minutes to get to work, right? It's, it's that type of thing. So you're looking at it from that perspective, from a safety perspective, sustainability, all of it. We're, you know, we're investing our money in the best way possible. Now, this office was developed as part of Planning Forward, which is uh, an internal initiative aimed at ensuring uh, that they're effectively meeting the evolving needs of both our workforce and users of, uh, of the transportation network, as you mentioned. Now, uh, I want to get into a little bit your uh, uh, outside work activities. And, and oh Anya mentioned uh, Karate Guru. I'm not sure that's the, the technical term for it. I believe the technical term for it is Rokudan as a six-degree black belt. Oh, boy. Oh, that sounds- um, but uh, but you, you've been in and around martial arts for probably your entire life. Talk about uh, you know uh, your experience in that and, and when you started to get involved uh, in, in the martial arts. Sure. Um, so I was six. Uh, so I was born in Philadelphia, uh, and I was, uh, I'm, I'm short. Now, imagine me as a kid, so I'm shorter, and I, and I have glasses. And boy, I got picked on a lot. There was a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of bullying. So, you know, six years old, my dad was like, "We we can't have this. We I need to get you to to learn how to fight." And um, uh, he put me in a karate school when I was six years old. Trained for a couple of years. Uh, interesting. This was before. This is back in 1979, uh, 1970, 1980. This was before you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and 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 it became you know karate. The Dark Ages, what we call it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But before karate became mainstream for kids, right? So my my dad was calling all these you know dojos in Philly, and he was like, "I got a six year old," and they're like, "We don't take them until they're 12, 15, 20. Like you know. Yeah, this is years before. Yeah, focused on kids. Right, and yeah. so you know he ended up uh, finding a place over in South Jersey, so we would drive across the bridge. You know, uh, across the Walt Whitman twice, you know, three times a week. So I would go over there and I'm in a class full of adults and I'm sitting there at six years old. I, I didn't have a gi because it was just they didn't make them that size. It's like, you know, I'm hanging out with like T-shirt with a patch on it. Um, so so anyway, I did that. And then when I moved up to Albany uh, when I was 11, I took Taekwondo um, and I did that uh, for a couple of years. Got myself a black belt in that and I quit that. And then after I got out of college, I started again with the style that I do right now. And I've been doing that style for 26 years. And uh, teaching for 22 of those years. So I've been an instructor all that time as well. Wow. Now, yeah. as, as an instructor, I mean, in martial arts in general, you know, what kind of effect outside of the dojo does that have? I mean, on your work and on what you do here, your leadership, uh, you know, that, that, that you have. Is there, is there a connection there? I feel like there would be. I, I think there is. Um, in terms of the, I'm not going to say leadership qualities, but definitely the I have a personality where I want to attack the problem, right? So if there's a problem going on, it's like, well, we should probably do something about this, right? I'm, I'm very action-oriented that way. Uh, and I don't know if martial arts brings that out in people or if people with that bent get into martial arts and stay in it, right? But either way, it's this definitely like this virtuous cycle, right, of being action-oriented gets rewarded. Um, 
And then, you know, and then you, you say, cool, I'm going to continue to do that, right? So I see a lot of things as challenges that we can totally meet, right? And both personally, but also professionally, right? And I try to engender that in the, the, the people that have worked with me on problems and the people that work for me, um, really making sure everybody knows these people are the experts. You should listen to them. Right. They know more about the things they do than most people in the country. So, like, let's give them room to work. Right. Stand back and watch what happens. Right. Um, one of the things that martial arts teaches you is I don't care how fast you are, but there's always someone bigger. But the important thing there is that martial arts forces humility upon you. Self-awareness. You yeah. You yeah. can't believe your own legend because it's it's right there. Right. You will get instant feedback that you're not good enough when you get kicked. Right. Right. right? That's and, definitely instant feedback. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, right. But when I was in I, uh, when I was in Catholic school years ago, uh, I I was in class, and one of the one of the um, one of the nuns had asked the question of the class, "What is humility?" And one of the kids in the class raised their hand. They said, "Humility is saying that you're bad at everything." And the and the the nun was like, "No, no, 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 no. Humility is knowing what you're good at and saying that you're good at it, and knowing what you're bad at." And being able to say that you're bad at it, right? And so I'm an expert in the things and a couple things that I do, but are very narrow things, right? And that does not give me the ability to speak as a, you know, as 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 research on anything else besides a couple things, right? Martial arts is one of them. Uh, you know, this asset management stuff. I think, um, you know, I've been asked to make presentations for PhDs and stuff, and you know, I'm usually the dumbest guy in the room, but they listen to me, so that's good, right? Anything outside of that. I don't have the right to have too much of an opinion. I mean, I can say it and immediately go, please correct me if I'm wrong, you know? And martial arts kind of taught me that as well, right? You know what you know and know what you don't know. Pretty much, right? And that makes you smarter than most. Now, where has martial arts taken you? Because you've gone to some cool places and done some cool things because of that. Yeah. Uh, talk to our, our, our listeners about, about what it's kind of uh, allowed you and enabled you to do. Sure. So... um when I, when I was younger and doing Taekwondo, I did a lot of tournaments um, because that's the, the, the Taekwondo scene is, is tied around a lot of tournament stuff. So in my teens, you know, traveling to, to different places in New England and, and uh, Western New York. And, but then later on, when I, in this style, I was able to – I was selected to go to train over in Japan for 10 days uh, as, a, as part of a delegation. And that was, that was super awesome. I mean, that was super cool. You've got a lot of – Passions outside of work. Obviously, karate is one of them. You also play a strategy game, oh, and yeah. Josh has been kind of digging I I, into I boned this. up on a little bit. Did I you really? Up. Yeah, yeah, I looked up uh, Kings of War, I believe, is what you said. Was yeah. The, uh, was, yeah. Was, your, was your game of choice. Uh, you know, talk about... Uh, Talk about that, about uh, oh, mini war games. I'm a nerd. So uh, <laughs> I love... Nerd alert. That's right. Um, I love uh, board games and strategy games. And one of the one of the things that I got into um, when I was in college is a game called Warhammer, uh, where you know you paint the little figurines and uh, you put them on a table, terrain and stuff, and you play. Um, so I am uh, nationally ranked in one of those games now. I also do a lot of historical uh, war games too. So um, a lot of Civil War stuff, uh, Napoleonic era um, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. What I have found actually, as I, when you're young and you're in college and you're in, you're in grade school, it's really easy to make friends because you're just hanging out with everybody all day. Right. And then like when you're done with that and you move off into work, if you're not going to be like super close friends with your people at work, which when I was young at the consulting firm was easy because we're all 22 and no one has anything to do with going out all the time. Um, 
But these board games and these other things, the, the martial arts, et cetera, they give a framework for people to meet each other that doesn't involve the weirdness of going, I don't know you, Josh, would you like to go out to lunch? And it's like, I, have, I don't know you, bro, right? But if I, if I came and I was like, you and I are going to play a game together, right, because you come to play, and now we have this shared experience that allows us to, be, to kind of get to know each other, right? So, Anya, that would be, that'd be the same idea. And I think that um, all of the hobbies that I have had have given me a richness to my, to my life, right? So uh, when I was working at the consultant firm, uh, they put me out in Rochester for 18 months straight. So I was out there six days a week. I could come home to Albany one day a week. And so I was out there working. It's one of the reasons I didn't work there after after a while. But I was out there working, working, working. But after the first three weeks when I was told you're staying out here was I'm going to find a dojo and I'm going to find a game store. And I had – I built a life out there. And you found your people out there. Yeah, because the – you walk into a dojo, you bow, right. and everybody's got the white PJs on, and it's we kind of know what to expect. And there's a framework for to allow us to interact with, with each other and get to know each other, right? And the, the gaming thing allows me the same thing. Josh says that a lot. Everybody's got a nerd capacity yeah. going on, and, oh, yeah. and that's how you find your people, right? your tribe. Yeah, totally you true. Know? Yep, I'd say we all do. We all do. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. No, it's a good thing. Mike, we always ask our guests what their favorite road trip is. And favorite road trip and song. What's yours? Okay. So favorite road trip. Uh, one of the other things that I do a lot of is hiking. And so uh, I'm a couple of hikes away from getting my 46, uh, the 46. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank that you. That's great. Uh, favorite road trip has to be going up to um, the Lake Placid area. Mm. That Keene Valley is just gorgeous. It is a treasure. Um, and uh, favorite road road song. Wow. Um if I had, well, to be honest, it's whatever my daughter is into right now. She she controls the radio when she's in the in the car with me. And after a couple of times, all of a sudden, I I think I might be a Swifty. I think that's possible. <laughs> You're a girl, Dad. Nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with that. It's what it is. Right. Nothing wrong with that. Well, uh, Mike, can't thank you enough for for taking the time and and coming down here and and chatting with us for uh, for a little bit, telling us a little bit more about what you do and and also about this uh, this this brand new office. And we wish you the best of luck in it. I know uh, you're, you're going to be staffing it up, and uh, but it sounds like it it has a ton of potential to to really really have a big impact. I hope so. I'm I am beyond honored that uh, the department handed the handed the effort to me to try to do. I mean, there's there's a lot of good that we can do here, right? Um, and hopefully, I can deliver. I don't doubt that for one second. Congrats. Well, uh, Anya, another another great episode today. I can't tell you how many wires were firing in my mind while I was listening to Mike talk about all these different things that we're working on here. And futures, the future's looking bright. I would say so. I would yeah. say so. So thanks again, Mike. And uh, thank you to everyone for tuning in again to this episode of the DOTPOD. Uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, make sure to give us a like, give us a follow, shoot us a comment uh, if you want, or you can reach us at podcast at dot.ny.gov. And until next time, we'll see you right here on the DOTPOD. Mm-hmm.